Hi, I'm Larry Castle here with Ken Brown for episode 85 of That's a Good Question, How Can I Understand the Bible? Well, we're going to pick up today where we left off last episode, and that is answering the question, how can I understand the Bible? We talked last week, can we understand the Bible? So this week, how can I understand the Bible? And we saw in that last episode that contrary to what many people think, interpreting the Bible is not the same as simply just expressing your opinion Mm -hmm. about something that it says. Uh, You hear people say things like, um, well, that's just your interpretation, you know, Uh emphasis on the just. And what they're essentially saying is it's the same thing as saying, well, that's just your opinion. Right. Uh, But you laid out some important points that provide a more solid basis for us to interpret the Bible. So remind us what some of those are. Well, we made the point that there is a great deal of subjectivity with many of our opinions. We often express our opinion based on how we feel about Mm -hmm. something or how something struck us in the moment. Last week, I used the example of a presidential debate and folks judging who won based on nebulous kinds of things like looking presidential Mm -hmm. or turning in a so-called commanding performance. What looks presidential to one person is not necessarily the same as what looks that way to another. Clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) And with interpretation, and especially with written communication like the Bible, Mm -hmm. that subjectivity can be removed, and you can take a more objective approach. You can look at it, you can analyze it according to some rules of interpretation, And because it's written, you're not influenced by factors like how does the person look or do they have a pleasant speaking voice. Mm -hmm. And so we offered some rules of interpretation that all of us use all the time in all of our communication, but we just don't always realize that we're, we're doing it. And we made the case that if those rules are applied to interpreting the Bible, then it will not be like an opinion where, you know, you just uh, go with how it strikes you. Uh, I made the statement that the reason we have so many interpretations of the Bible is not because God has written it in a way that makes it hopelessly obscure. I mean, think about that. Why would God bother? Right, right. Right. But rather, it's because we don't all play by the same rules. Right, right. And you offered those rules last time, and they, they make really good sense. So you said, for example, uh, rule number one, a text cannot mean mm-hmm. what it never meant. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two was all texts are not alike. And number three, a text can have only one meaning. So uh, if any of you did not see the episode, then I encourage you watch it uh, or listen to it, whatever the case may be. It explains what each of those means in detail. Yeah. And I'll put a link up here above Pastor Ken to that episode if you'd like to take a look if you haven't already, and as well in the video description below. But it's good that we have these rules to guide us in our interpretation, so that way it's not just wide open right. to whatever someone thinks it means or wants it to mean, right. but rather, uh, well, I was going to say, but uh, how do we know that these are the rules. Uh, so yeah. someone might be sitting out there saying, <clears throat> okay, that's fine. You say these yeah. are the rules, yeah. but how do we know these are the rules? Why can't someone else come up with their own list of rules of interpretation that are just as valid? So if you're an, if you're an Olympic athlete from a country that's caught doping like the Russian Federation has been, then there needs to be some way uh, that, on the one hand, you can hand 
these athletes the opportunity to compete, but on the other, not recognize the cheating country. Okay. So instead of the Russian Federation, they're called the Russian Olympic Committee, right, or ROC. <laughs> why are we talking about the Olympics and why countries shouldn't compete if they cheat by doping? And what's going on here? You asked, how do we know what the rules were to follow? And, and so I'm telling you. Okay, but I wasn't asking about rules for athletes or games. I was asking about rules for interpretation. Ah, well, that's because apparently you assume that the speaker or the writer's intention hmm. should control the meaning, right? Yes, yes. So you have to assume that. Yeah. Otherwise, you can't really communicate meaningfully, yeah. right? And of course, you're right. right. And for our viewers and listeners, I'm now reverting back to sanity. This is what we <laughs> refer to in youth ministry as a skit. <laughs> And it's been a very long time for me, not so long for you, so I'm not very good at yeah. it. You're pretty good at it. That's good. But I'm reverting back to sanity now, as I was obviously changing the context on purpose to make a point of what we said last week about the author's intended meaning, having control. I'm making the point now that that rule is a given. We didn't have to decide that before we had this conversation. Mm -hmm. Hey, will it be okay if what you intend to say... Could you I imagine if you had control? to lay down those ground rules yeah. every time? All right, so when I say something this yes. time, it's going to be what I really... It's going to mean what it sounds Let's like. Let's go with what I intended <laughs> to say, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's a given. Or to use a fancy term, it's a transcendental. Mm -hmm. It must be assumed to be true. Otherwise, you can't communicate at all. So when you assume that you're the speaker's intended meaning should be controlling, of course, you're, you're right about that. I don't have the right to change your meaning later. Mm -hmm. And if I can do that, then it causes all kinds of chaos in determining what any communication means, including communication in the Bible. Yeah, so you're saying that these are rules, uh, th that these rules, mm -hmm. like the ones that we talked about last week, a text can't mean what it never meant yeah. and only has one meaning, right. that, that these are rules that if you don't adhere to them, it makes it impossible to communicate. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's that's how we know they're valid <laughs> in, in answer to your earlier question, that it's not just my set and somebody else comes up with their, their own set. Mm -hmm. they're, they're valid and they're even necessary because you cannot communicate at all if you do not follow these. You can't even communicate to refute these rules mm -hmm. <laughs> without, in fact, following these rules. That's why they're a given. That's why they're transcendental. Communication is impossible without these. The reason these rules are valid and necessary is because, now let's go back, mm -hmm. God created human communication this way. Mm. That, that's why it's a given. Consider God communicating uh, with Adam and Eve. They didn't go to school to learn how uh, to interpret what he, he said. They just did it. And they abided by the rule of authorial intent, the meaning of the speakers, the writers, meaning when God said you're not to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, they knew uh, what, that, what was the meaning. And they interpreted it in its, its context with the speakers, in this case God's meaning, as the controlling one, and they weren't allowed to just make up their own. Hmm. So authorial, authorial intent is woven into the fabric of human communication, and that from the very beginning, and we cannot communicate apart from that. Now, some years ago, a few years ago, uh, we had a, a young man in our church uh, write to the pastoral staff and ask, what is our objective standard to know when something should be taken literally or non-literally? And my answer was, to him was similar to what I'm, I'm saying here. We need to remember that literal 
is both foundational and it's controlling. Let me just briefly explain what I mean. That is, it's foundational in that the first communication ever exchanged among humans uh, had to have been literal, as Adam and Eve would not have known uh, to what to compare or liken or symbolize something that they heard in, in the beginning. So how can they make this represent that? They just don't, they just don't know enough at, at that point. The initial communication they received and that they gave had to be, in the very nature of the case, literal. It's only after you've established this foundation of literal meaning that figures of speech and symbols then can be introduced. Hmm. So that's why I say literal is, is foundational. And then as time goes on, language develops, symbols and figures are introduced in, into communication. Literal still remains controlling. The foundation is, is laid, but now it's still controlling. You have to assume the literal meaning for the figures and the symbols to work. Mm-hmm. So if I say, Pastor Larry flew the coop, <laughs> that only has... <laughs> you should pick that as an he got on, he got on. He got on his one wheel, and he, <laughs> and he left the building. <laughs> Pastor Larry has left the building. But Pastor, if I say, he, you flew the coop, mm-hmm. it only has the intended meaning of he left... If one knows that chickens literally fly away from their their coop. Mm-hmm. So it's not the case that interpreting something literally or allegorically are equal possibilities. It's not mm-hmm. that I can come to a passage, that I have the right to come to a passage and say, do I want to do this allegorically or do I want to do it literally? Flip a coin they're, each time. Yeah, no, they're not equal say. possibilities. You assume that something is literal mm-hmm. because that's foundational and it's controlling and then you entertain the possibility that mm-hmm. in that particular context, it might be being used so in a non-literal contextual clues. The text itself telling to you tell to you think that. of it in exactly non-literal. But way. you don't approach a statement with the equal possibility you can take it literal or literally or metaphorically, and that the difference is is up to you. So interpretation is not a subjective exercise where we decide what it means either in common back-and-forth communication like we're doing now or the communication from God that we find in the Bible. Mm -hmm. There are rules that govern both types of communication. Those rules are valid because they have to be assumed to communicate at all or to even try to deny that they're valid. They're givens. They are transcendentals. And we use them for interpreting anything, including the Bible. Yeah, seems like... That should be pretty straightforward, and yet here we are, we're having to explain mm. it. Mm. Why is this even an issue? Apparently, not everyone sees this. Yeah, unfortunately, that's that's right. Not everyone uh, does, and we're most concerned with interpreting the Bible. Uh, but before we get to that, there are actually other areas of society in which the laws of language are being violated, mm. uh, like it often is with the Bible, and it creates problems in those realms uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew a, a brother you know, years ago at uh, the, our parent church that sent us to plant the church that we now, that we now pastor, and he was taking uh, classes at a uh, master's level classes at a local university, and he was taking a class on reading, <laughs> master's level on reading. <laughs> <laughs> But it was, he would come to church every week and he and I would talk and he was just kind of shaking his head at how this thing went. It was this postmodern kind of approach to interpreting what it is you're, you're reading. Mm-hmm. And so the rules of interpretation and transcendentals and finding meaning in the author's intent and all of that was no objective criteria like that. It was mm-hmm. very subjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Bork, you may remember, some of you may remember that name, uh, 
he became a verb because mm, you, you can borked. get borked. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we've got a, a Supreme Court uh, nomination coming up. I think the, uh, I think the uh, hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee are this coming week, uh, this next week. And President Biden has nominated a woman for the Supreme Court. And so she's going to be grilled. But back in the mid-'80s when Robert Bork was nominated for the mm-hmm. Supreme Court by Ronald Reagan and he was grilled, that that was a whole spectacle of its its own. Now, a few years ago, we had we were treated to the spectacle of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, mm-hmm. uh, and many of you were just amazed at that, as all of us were. I was a little bit less. Some of us older folk are a little bit less amazed because we remember Bork going mm-hmm. through a similar kind of thing. So there have been these circuses when these Supreme Court justices are have been uh, nominated. And part of it has to do with their approach to interpreting what rules do they use to interpret the the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Bork wrote uh, a book called years ago called The Tempting of of America. And then the subtitle was The Political Seduction of the Law. The Political Seduction Mm -hmm. of the Law. And what he was saying was, think about that title, The Political Seduction of the Law. He's saying that the the law, which should be this objective thing Mm -hmm. that's equally applied to everybody— it's not this subjective thing, but it's being seduced because it's being politicized. Mm-hmm. The law is being politicized. And one way it's politicized is by bringing approaches to interpretation that take the objectivity out of it. Mm-hmm. And he's advocating, he was advocating for originalism, mm-hmm. the original meaning or the original intent of the, of the, of the passage. Uh, in academia today, you have this postmodern interpretation of texts, and it's it's very popular. And postmodernism focuses on the relative truths that each person holds. So, in the postmodern understanding, interpretation is really everything. Mm. Reality only comes into being through our interpretations of what the world means to us individually. Now, by the 1960s. The notion of relative and therefore changing meaning, it had really gained a foothold in universities, so much so that there was a professor at the the University of Illinois, a guy named E.D. Hirsch, and he wrote a book called Validity in Interpretation. Think about the title of that. Late 70s, he writes this book of validity in interpretation. Well, why? Because of all of this postmodern kind of subjective interpretation that was happening. And he's defending the notion of objectivity. Mm. in, uh, for him, the humanities, in uh, the study of the humanities. And he was saying that there's meaning in, in the text, and the meaning of the text mm. does not change based upon who it is that's reading it. In other words, there could be an invalid way to interpret. Absolutely. Is what he's Absolutely. Okay. And there's a criteria against which you can judge whether it's valid mm. or invalid. But as it relates to the Bible... This issue of adhering to the given laws of language, including the author's intended meaning, is controlling and does not change, but this rears its head primarily those who deny that that kind of thing. Uh, This rears its head in biblical interpretation primarily when we're dealing with prophecies in the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. predictions in the Old Testament of what will happen in the future. The belief is this, uh, that some of the meaning of some of those prophecies and predictions in the Old Testament is not derived from the author in the Old Testament, Mm. but rather by how it's used in the New Testament. Mm. The New Testament can, according to some, reassign the meaning. 
So this becomes problematic if if you're if you see that you really cannot communicate unless you have these given laws, but now because you've come to the Bible, you can at least in certain cases suspend those laws. And we kind of touched on that in last episode when we talked about, you know, if you think of it as having two disconnected meanings, mm-hmm. the human author right. and God as an author, you right. can so I'm, I'm sure there is some justification uh, given for why people would say that, right? That the original meaning of the passage has changed by the time you get to the New Testament? For sure. And as I say this, it, it, look, it, some very, very good people. So I'm not impugning the, the character of the people who believe this, because many of the people are very, very good people, and they're trying to do justice, we all are, mm-hmm. to what the Bible actually says what the Bible actually teaches. And when they see the New Testament authors using the Old Testament in ways that are not readily apparent (laughs) Mm -hmm. as to how they're doing that and what connection they're making, then they're trying to make uh, the best interpretation of it that that they can, as I say, like we all are. So yeah, for sure. Uh, It's based on how they see the New Testament writers using passages from the Old Testament. And when they see the New Testament writers quoting and applying a passage in a way that's not the same or doesn't appear to be the same as the context for when the Old Testament writer wrote it, then many conclude there's now a new meaning Mm -hmm. when you come to the New Testament. Remember last week I said what you alluded to just just now, that every book of the Bible has two authors. You have God, you have Mm -hmm. the human author, and if you separate their intentions, you're going to run into trouble. Well, this is the kind of thing I was referring to. Because the Bible's unique in its origin, it's written by men, but ultimately it's given to us by by God, then many conclude that it's also unique in its interpretation. Let me say Mm -hmm. that again. Because the Bible is unique in its origin, Mm -hmm. many conclude that it's also unique in its interpretation, and that therefore special rules of interpretation are to be applied to the Bible that aren't applied to anything else. That these given laws of interpretation, these transcendental laws of interpretation, do not apply across the board to the Bible. Now, I want to acknowledge my indebtedness for what I'm going to say following to Dr. Mark Snowberger of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. Most of our listeners are familiar with Dr. Snowberger. He's taught at our church a number of times, and we benefited greatly. But he, from from his ministry, he wrote a, a series of short articles on this subject. And in turn, in those articles, he acknowledges his own dependence in part on our mutual theological mentor, the late mm-hmm. Dr. Roland McCune of DBTS. Dr. Snowberger comments on the problem of finding a deeper meaning finding God's meaning beyond the original human author's meaning. He says, The Bible, since it is written in a normal manner with respect to grammar and syntax and genres and figures and so on, contains no additional hidden meanings that were missed by the original writers and readers, just using standard grammatical and interpretive methods. A statement made in the Old Testament had precisely the same meaning to its immediate readers that it has to modern readers. True, he says, later revelation, New Testament, often clarifies or expands what's known by earlier revelation in the Old Testament, but it never divulges hidden messages unknown to the original communicators, much less those that re-signify, that's reassign meaning mm. to the Old Testament text. He quotes an, old, uh, 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 an older scholar um, named uh, Milton Terry, who says, the moment we admit the principle that portions of Scripture contain a double sense, mm. 
then we introduce an element of uncertainty in the sacred volume, and we unsettle all scientific interpretation. Who knows, says Dr. Snowberger, perhaps the plain meaning of the precious New Testament promises of things like eternal life and heaven and eternal reward will one day yield to some mm. new meaning that rises to replace it. Mm -hmm. So just to show you that people really, that there really are people who believe that what God said in the Old Testament is not really going to happen as it was promised. And as I've said, I want to say again, there are many, many such good people. One such person says this, quote, the promises of God are never an announcement of what God has irrevocably determined to do, but only what he will do in certain circumstances. If this makes prophecy, this person says, seem very uncertain, I am very sorry, but I cannot help it, for that is just the way it is. Hmm. <sighs> yeah, that, that is, uh, yeah, that's difficult. Yeah. That in introduces all kinds of difficulties. Yeah. So, so what are some of the specific areas of the Bible where this shows up and makes a difference in how we would understand what God's promised? Well, Dr. Snowberger uh, points out that many end up creating new linguistic options that the original mm -hmm. author demonstrably never in intended. So, for instance, after God clarifies, he says, at length and with unequivocal specificity that Abram's biological seed would be eternally plentiful in Genesis chapter 15. Then Snowberger says, and I agree with him, it's not possible for a modern interpreter to allow this explicit denotation now to fall away in favor of a greater seed and a greater Israel that Abram did not have in mind on in Genesis chapter 15. Mm -hmm. But that's how many interpret God's promise to, to Abram. Uh, similarly, after God invites Abram to pace through the, the land of promise, to establish its precise length and breadth and its contours in mm. Genesis chapter 13, it's not possible for this now ex explicit denotation to fall away in favor of a greater land that Abram did not have in mind. What did he have in mind? He had dirt in mind. Mm. He had particular soil in mind, the stuff that he was walking on. Uh, so it's not possible to do that. And likewise, when the, the prophets dedicate dozens of chapters to just praising and exulting about millennial blessings in the, in the future kingdom that are geological, they're zoological, they're mm -hmm. meteorological, they're agricultural, they're medical, they're political, they're sociological, and on it goes. I mean, you read the prophets and you just see all that they say about this. It's not possible for the modern reader to re-signify those as merely spiritual blessings. Yeah. And you did say earlier that there are times in the New Testament where writers quote and apply a passage in a way that's not the same as the context for the original Old Testament writer. Right. Um, so if we shouldn't conclude that they have now assigned a new meaning, then how do we deal with those kinds mm, of passages? Yeah, yeah. Well, because of the nature of language, we don't succumb to the temptation, and it is a temptation. To make an exception and say, well, this passage from the Old Testament now means something different or even more than what it did when it was first written. We, because if you, if you adhere to the transcendental laws of, and the given laws of communication, then that's not an option for you. I understand the reason why it's tempting to take that option. 
because at first glance, it looks that way. Mm -hmm. But you're going to do the work of saying, okay, that violates the laws of all language. Mm -hmm. so, so we can't do that. The reason that we're zealous to maintain these principles is because we don't want to fall into what I quoted earlier, where the writer says God's promises are not what God has irrevocably determined to do. The truth is the land, the promise of the land to Israel and the promise of a biological seed to Abram that will be eternally plentiful and the promise of a literal kingdom of almost Eden-like conditions, all of these are unconditional promises of God. Mm. And he will irrevocably, as a matter of fact, <laughs> do those. In fact, it's interesting that that author says, you know, these are not promises that are ir irrevocable. In the New Testament, speaking of some of these promises to his people Israel in Romans chapter 11 and verse 29, here's what it says. God's gifts and his call are, uses that very word, irrevocable, okay? In case you were wondering. Yes. These, I'm not going to revoking any of this. I'm mm -hmm. still going to do all of this. So we don't want to concede that something that God has promised will not happen in the way that he promised it. Because if you use a special method to interpret the Bible rather than those given, given normal laws of interpretation, then one, it makes the meaning of Scripture unavailable to everybody because you have to be apprised of the, the special methods. See, if you, if you use the method we're talking about, and we're talking about it without ever having to define it because mm -hmm. it's a given, mm -hmm. <laughs> then everybody has it. But if you have to invoke some special method, well, by mm. definition, not everybody's going to, to have it then. That's one. And it can call into question the integrity and the authority, authority of the Bible itself if you're not careful. Yeah. So we, in the time that we've got left, can you uh, give us an example of how the two different approaches would work? I think Dr. Snowberger offers a good example in that paper that, that we can send to any who request it uh, and just uh, maybe put the email address um, uh, for the podcast, so folks can email yeah, us. If yeah, they want you that. could. At the end of the podcast, you'll see our address info at cbctrenton.com. Okay. Just shoot us an email. Then. But he gives us the example of Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, uh, and verses 15 through 18. And there, in those four verses, Matthew quotes two Old Testament passages one from Hosea chapter 11, another from Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, neither of those Old Testament passages are predicting anything. At least not obviously so, <laughs> when you go look at them mm -hmm. in, their, in their context. They're just narrating something that happened at the time that they were wrote. But here's Matthew saying that events in the life of Jesus and Mary and Joseph are, full, quote, fulfilling mm -hmm. those passages. So those who take a non-literal approach say that God is using Matthew to progressively divulge a, a narrative embedded into the, the Old Testament. Known, that's the deeper meaning. Deeper meaning, mm -hmm. no, and therefore known originally and completely only to God, mm. not to the human authors, not to anybody at that time. Mm -hmm. And looking at it this way is how we in our day can fully appreciate what these Old Testament passages mean. That's what's, what's said. So we don't know what they fully mean until we get to the New Testament. But see, that violates the principle that a text cannot mean what it never meant. Mm-hmm. A better approach, then, rather than coming up with a unique way to interpret, is to look more carefully at the passage. <laughs> now, let me just stop here again. Why do I need to, you know, why isn't it just straightforward? Sometimes people mistake 
what we're saying here about the use of these rules to mean that it's easy. And I haven't said that. Now, it takes a lot of the ambiguity out. But remember, you're dealing with an ancient book. And mm -hmm. you're dealing with an ancient book that was written over a 1,500-year period by different authors. And many of them are pointing to the same event, but they're doing so in a di literally a different language, mm -hmm. Hebrew, Greek, and you, you, know, mm -hmm. you got all kinds mm -hmm. of factors there. So I'm not saying that it's easy, but I am saying that we could, should consistently use the same rules for that communication as we do with all other communication. Mm -hmm. So look, therefore, if you, if you believe that, that this is the way language works then look more carefully at the passage to harmonize what it says in Matthew 2 with what Hosea and Jeremiah have already meant for centuries. And one way to do that in this particular case is to see that the word that's translated fulfill in Matthew 2 has a uh, semantic range. Mm. We talked about that last week, that semantic is, range. That yeah. is, that's wider than just you made a prediction and it came to pass mm -hmm. here. It can mean nothing more than an analogy sometimes, made after the fact. So it's like when. Yes, okay. yes, it's like that, similar mm -hmm. to that. So it keeps the meaning of the Old Testament passage intact without resorting to a whole new interpretive mm -hmm. method. So here's a, here's a summary. You know, Non-literalists believe, uh, and when I say non-literalists, I mean people who at times are non-literal when it's not obvious that the passage itself is non-literal. Mm -hmm. Okay, That's what I mean by that. It's yeah. not that they're non-literal all the time. Right. Non-literalists believe the New Testament writers sometimes violate the received given transcendental laws of language. I don't, mm -hmm. and, and I encourage our listeners and our, our um, viewers to consider not doing so mm -hmm. <laughs> as well. Second, you, you need to decide if you believe the Bible offers an entirely new interpretive method at times that's not found anywhere else, that's not found anywhere else in, in human existence. So does, going back to what I said, since it's uniquely has a unique origin, do you also believe it has a unique interpretation mm -hmm. as well? And I recommend Dr. Snowberger's series of articles that we can send to those who ask. And I also, lastly, recommend Dr. Michael Vlach, V-L-A-C-H, V-L-A-C-H, Michael Vlach. He has a new and masterful book, actually, on this very topic of the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. He takes every reference in the New Testament that cites the Old, mm -hmm. and he shows how it can and should be interpreted in its own context. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll link yeah. to that in okay. the description below this video okay. as well. So. Very helpful, uh, important topic, really foundational topic yes. for every Christian, how we understand God's Word. So we hope this has benefited you. And uh, if you haven't already, why don't you subscribe to our YouTube channel so you'll know, hit that notification bell, and then you'll know when we put new episodes out. We try to do that every Saturday at 2 p.m., and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com, or text it to us at 97000.